Well, hey, good morning again. If you're just joining us, we are in part five of a five-part series on race, and almost every day we're reminded why this series matters, aren't we? You know, I think about right now we're filming this on Thursday, and the verdict hasn't come out yet on the, the case that's being tried in Kenosha, and there's a lot of tension right now about, regardless of what the verdict is, of how people are going to react. The evidence that we still have a long way to go in this area, it is absolutely everywhere. In fact, just yesterday, uh, I, there was an article in my news feed. It was about a city council member who lives in an exclusive Kansas City suburb. And she wanted to know, hey, are there any laws on the books that would keep people from having chickens in their backyard? So she dug into all of the, the documents and all of the books, and she didn't find anything about chickens or banning chickens in the association, but she did find this. And this is how it appears in the covenant agreement for the Prairie Village Homeowners Association. None of said land may be conveyed to, owned, or occupied by blacks as owners or tenants. Now the Supreme Court ruled against covenants like this in 1948 and the Fair Housing Act of 1968 banned all of these types of provisions. But this unjust and this morally offensive language, it hasn't been removed. It hasn't been removed here. And this article went on to say you can find similar things in almost every state in the nation. Will Smith, he framed our situation today like this. He said, racism isn't getting worse. It's getting filmed. Today, it's getting harder to keep things hidden, and that's a good thing. Whether it's a viral video or whether it's an article like the one that I, I just referenced, more and more people are seeing things that used to be easier to either hide or to deny. And you would think, you would think that it would be an absolute no-brainer that discrimination based on the color of someone's skin would be called out, that it would be condemned. You would think that we should be able to agree, all of us, that steps should be taken to the extent that it's possible to fix systems that are broken. Well, a few minutes after reading that article, I came across a video. The video featured a successful black woman named Carol Swan. She grew up in poverty in the state of Virginia. She dropped out of eighth grade. She had three kids by the time she was 20. And it was such an inspirational story because she overcame these challenges to become a professor of political science at Vanderbilt. In the video, she talked about the keys to her own success. She talked about working hard and making good decisions and getting help along the way from caring people. And most of all, she said, and these are her words, I'm quoting her, she said the most important thing was to be born in a nation where the point at which you start doesn't determine the place where you end. Today, it's getting easier and easier to find stories like this too. Stories of people of all skin tones who have overcome extremely challenging situations. And you would think it would be an absolute no-brainer to highlight and celebrate these stories, to learn from them, and to the extent that it's possible, to inspire others to apply these same principles to their own lives. You would think 
it would be easy to unite people around both naming and fixing unjust systems and also to inspire people to work hard and to make wise decisions. But if you are sensing that it's getting harder and harder to unite people around anything, the facts are probably on your side here. They seem to back it up. During the series, we hosted three events right in this room. We called them Let's Talk Thursdays. Two of these three were hosted by a facilitator named Hollis Kim. And Hollis introduced me before one of these events to a website by an organization called Braver Angels. Before one of the events, he, he, he took me to the site and these slides that they had on one of their pages were so striking to me. On one slide, they showed how more and more people politically over time are moving further and further apart. They had a second slide and on this slide, it was a graph of, get this, how accepting would you be if, if your kid married somebody from another political party? And in the 60s, it was about zero, but then years later, it was about 50% in 2016. The slide that stood out to me the most was the slide about what Republicans over time have felt about Democrats and Democrats about Republicans over time. And watching the graph just go like this over time to the place where in 2017 or whatever it is, they, they, 90% of Republicans can't stand Democrats and 90% of Democrats can't stand Republicans. If you feel as though everything, including important conversations like this, are being politicized and polarized, there's evidence to support that. It's as if all of us were in the fuselage of a jet airplane and all the passengers on the right are shouting at the top of their lungs, hey, if we're going to get this thing from where we are to where we need to go, we've got to get this right wing fixed and working. And it's as if the people on the left side of the plane are all saying, if we're going to get this thing going where it needs to go, we've got to get this wing on the left working and functioning. And meanwhile, there's people like you, you and me who are saying, which wing is most important? Which wing do we need? Don't we need both of these things? John Perkins says this about our current state. Raise your hand. Seriously, raise your hand if you agree. Both sides are yelling too loudly to listen to one another. Why are we calling this series Untrenched? We're calling it Untrenched because instead of working together, it's as if there's a new civil war that's being fought. It's being fought over why racial disparities exist, who's to blame, what language we should use, and how we should respond. And there's concern that we noted when we launched this series. I believe it's worth noting now as we land it. The way that most people are responding to racial discrimination and disparities are turning potential allies into adversaries. We're seeing this play out in politics. We're seeing this play out in workplaces. We're seeing this play out in schools. And we're seeing this play out in churches. A few weeks ago, I saw an article in The Atlantic. They interviewed a guy who had been researching race and Christianity 
for decades. He said, I've been watching the trends for 25 years, he said, and the amount of division and conflict that we are seeing in churches right now, there has never been anything like it. It is worse than I've ever seen, at least over the course of his studying for 25 years. Here's a quote from the article. He says this, The aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found its way into American churches. All right, take a look at that quote. How does that quote compare to the vision that Jesus cast for his church? Here's another quote, same article. The root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace, but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. Jesus once asked his disciples, what good is salt? If it loses its saltiness. Do you remember what he, what he answered? His own question? He said, it's good for nothing. Nothing. In a world as broken and divided as ours, let's spend the final week, let's invest the final week of our series in reminding ourselves of the answer to this question. Here's the question. What does the God of creation and the cross require of us? How many of you know, God's already told us the answer to this question. He didn't just tell us, he even showed us, demonstrated it, modeled it. So before we put it up on the screens, let's do this. Let's retrace our steps on this journey that we've been on together. And I want to begin by giving a heartfelt thank you to you for the way that you have conducted yourselves during this series. It is so uncommon. Thank you. Every one of these messages that's been given, every one, if we had a chance to do it a hundred times, a hundred times, we would a hundred times revise it. Because the words, there's always a better way to say it than, than we said it. Every single word we use triggers some people one way, it triggers other people another way. And we're all continuing to learn, aren't we? And grow and develop. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your feedback. We appreciate all of it. I've never been a part of a church that is this committed to trying to listen and learn and love really, really well. As Bear Grylls said it, well done, you. Well done, you. All right, let's go back on the journey. Let's go back all the way to the spring of 2020. Race had been on our short list of topics that we really wanted to talk about since Ferguson. But May 25th, 2020 made it clear it's not just time. It's way, way, way past time for us to have this conversation. And the calls to action began. We began with a, a call to prayer. Many of you may remember that night. We gathered around on a, on a Zoom call and we prayed and we lamented for all the brokenness all around us. And then we did it. We put the conversation on the calendar for, the, for fall of 2021. And we called upon you, the church family, to let's go, let's listen, let's learn. And many of you answered that call. You read books, you watched videos, you engaged in difficult conversations. Very early on, as we were doing this, it became clear, didn't it, that there wasn't just one voice. 
There wasn't just one voice for all persons of color. There wasn't just one voice for all people who claimed to be using the scriptures. There wasn't just one voice for the black community or the Asian community or the Latino community or indigenous people groups. So one of the things we started to do was to gather a lot of resources and we created a suite of them we, where you can listen to unfiltered voices, some ones that we found particularly influential in the conversations that are happening out there. It's still up. You can still go to it, emmanuel.church slash untrenched. On that untrenched page, we made it clear. We created a category of it where there was one resource in there all by itself in its scripture because we want to make it crystal clear that we really do believe this is the one resource through which we filter all other thoughts. It's the standard that we compare everything else to. We also created a category called Influencers of Influencers. We talked about that last week where we listed resources by Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. We also created a category for influential authors and influential video series. Half lean right, half lean left. None of us agree with everything we see in all of these resources because they disagree very passionately with one another. But the reason we put them in there is that each one of those voices has something to contribute to this conversation. For many of you, a very, very important next step is to go and look at these resources, especially the ones that you're not familiar with, and to get a better handle of the people that, what people are saying as they're influencing those around us, and to hear these unfiltered voices offering these different perspectives. Well, perhaps the most important voices that we heard were those of you who gathered around in the room. In fact, right where I'm sitting, we set up a 16 foot by eight-foot table, where we had two of those eight-foot tables, four eight-foot tables all put together, and around it, we had people. Man, it looked, like the, it looked like the kingdom of God. We had people with ancestors from Korea and Malaysia and Africa and South America and Latin America and India and more. And people shared their own experiences. We asked them, what are your hopes for this series? What are your concerns for this series? And then we showed the approach that we're planning to take and we said, tell us, you know, what, what do you think about this? We're so thankful. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone who gathered around that table. All right, well, then came the series itself. In week one, we opened to 2 Corinthians 5 where we found this call to action. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Through us. Within that challenge was an invitation to reflect on, are you serving as an ambassador for a political party? Are you serving as an ambassador for another influencer? Or are you primarily an ambassador for Christ? Week two, we addressed one of those reoccurring themes that we heard people asking over and over as we got closer and closer to the series. They said, I would love to come away from this series better equipped to have difficult conversations. And that is exactly what we pressed into in week two. And we looked at a case study, a case study of a man named Paul, who almost everywhere he went, as he tried to be an, an ambassador for Christ, almost everywhere he went, he was met by mobs, but it was different in a city called Antioch. In the city of Antioch, what they did is they realized we are at an impasse, we're gonna reach out for help. And so what they did is they, they reached out to the church in Jerusalem and they sent representatives there. And as the representatives were each sharing their perspective, this crazy thing happened. Acts chapter 5, 15, 
Verse 12, the assembly fell silent. And what crazy, insane thing did they do? They listened. The church in Jerusalem, they took the approach of listening to one another and then anchoring the response to Scripture and finding common ground and then working out from there. For some of you, week two has your next step to become an advocate for common ground finding. Or maybe it's this other piece that we also included in, in um, week, two, week two, this, this idea, this framework for having difficult conversations. Every conversation involves three difficult conversations, doesn't it? The, does anybody remember? It was the what happened conversation, the feeling conversation, and the identity conversation. All right, week three. Week three, we pause to lament over the injustices that people of color have been and continue to be subjected to. Our text that we opened to that week was Nehemiah chapter 1. What a fantastic template for our time. In it, Nehemiah weeps and he mourns. He fasts and he prays. He confesses not only his sins, but also the sins of his people. And he anchored to God's promises. Nehemiah 1.8, remember, as he prayed, he said, remember the word, God, that you commanded your servant Moses. The people of God don't lament like those who have no hope. If you want to set in motion the promises of God, follow the example in Nehemiah, who after confessing his sin, made a commitment to be part of the solution. For some of you, your action steps are right in that week, week three. All right, last week, we're almost to this week. Last week, we reminded one another that our words create worlds. And our text was Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for we will reap a harvest if we don't what? If we don't give up. Last week, we compared and contrasted words that most people are using today to the words that we find in Scripture. They point us down two very different paths, and we challenge one another. Let's continue on the path that has brought us from where we were to where we are now. So, there's a summary of our Sundays. Every week, we've offered practical steps that you can take. We also did this. We also offered that opportunity I mentioned earlier called Let's Talk Thursdays. And there were a whole lot of practical steps there and a whole lot of helpful information. Over the course of the three weeks, we had helpful, respectful conversations about CRT, about colorblindness, about what systemic racism looks like today, and how do we respond if someone leading a workshop is presenting things that are factually false. We had powerful moments, like when Levi shared his story of growing up as one of the only non-white kids in his white bear class at school. We also had, wow, we had a, just a really informative moment when, when for, I don't know, like 20 minutes, we were asking Joshua all these questions about what was it like to live in India and the caste system there. Well, for me, one of my big aha moments was when Hollis applied what we had been talking about with identity conversations to national identity. Like, that makes so much sense. 
That makes so much sense why those on the right struggle so much to, to um, accept how far we have to go and why those on the left, why it's so hard for them to accept how far we've come. Well, another practical action step that emerged in the course of those conversations was the importance of us all working to make Emmanuel a welcoming place. The discussion started with this conversation about should all churches look ethnically diverse? It was really interesting. The growing edge, the growing edge on that is, is very counterintuitive. Several of us, we've worshipped in different nations around the world. And we've, we've worshipped in situations where we were the only person with our skin tone. And they didn't adjust their language. They didn't adjust their style. They didn't adjust their custom. They would, didn't need to. But what they did is they welcomed us. They welcomed us. That is something all of us can always be doing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're automatically on the welcoming team. Can I get an amen? We're all on it. And also on the growing edge, churches, what they're doing is instead of saying, hey, do we have the perfect um, dispersion of ethnicities? They're saying we need to partner with other churches. And so you get Chinese-speaking churches partnering with Korean-speaking churches, partnering with English-speaking churches, partnering with Spanish-speaking churches, all of these different churches that are trying to reach different people using different styles, different approaches. What about churches partnering and coming together and listening and learning from one another. And this brings up something else that's been developing over the course of this series. And that is this conversation, this ongoing conversation that we've been having with a, a, a church planter and founder of Destino Covenant and the director of Latino Ministries for the Northwest Conference, a man named Mauricio. One day, more than a year ago, when we were having lunch together, he just, he just was musing, I think that's the word or something like that. He said, what if, you know, Jesus sent people, people out two by two. What if churches planted two by two? Well, <laughs> we met again just a few weeks ago and continuing these conversations. And we're to a spot where we're pretty close to, to saying, yeah, let's do it. Well, we're beyond close. We're saying, let's figure it out. What does it look like for us to partner together? And it, in fact, that, that conversation was so profound that he actually handed his phone to one of the servers. He asked the server to take the picture. I said, well, what are you doing? He says, we're going to want to remember this moment. We're going to want to remember this moment. Imagine if a year from now, we're doing something new together that neither of us could do alone. When I consider how our partnership at Emmanuel Children's Home way down in Juarez how that's transforming lives of us and them. Imagine what could happen if it's happening every week right here or someplace else. Right now what we're going to do, though, <laughs> is we're going to focus on getting Studio Church launched. Right now what we're going to do is make sure we get it to the other side of our snow camps. But then stay tuned. And perhaps your next step is going to involve being involved with whatever it is God's doing with this. All right, well, over the past year, there have been an unlimited, unlimited number of practical action steps that you can take. And now in this final week, let's go back to that question now that we raised earlier, the one that God's already provided the answer to. What does the God of the creation and the cross require of us? If you have your Bible with you at home, 
please open up with me to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to go right now. You go to uversion.com. They've got a great free Bible app. All right, here's what it says. Here's that question. In Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, O woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What a great way to summarize the work that God's called us to do. And it's even more vivid in the overall context of the book of Micah. If you've never watched the Bible Project's view, uh, overview of Micah, it's really, really good. Just go to thebibleproject.com, click watch, click book overviews, then click Micah. Micah was a prophet who lived around the time of Isaiah. And it was a time of great division. The children of Israel were split. They were divided into two different kingdoms, two separate nations. And more and more people were conforming to the culture around them instead of being ambassadors for transformation. Does any of this sound familiar? Well, in a world that was even more broken than ours is today, what did God require? Our work can be summarized in two powerful pairings. Number one, do justice. We devoted a week in, to unpacking the biblical concept of justice in our whatever series. Justice is rooted in God's character. The psalmist writes in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So as his image bearers, people are called to imitate him. We should do what is right and what is fair in God's eyes. We shouldn't take what isn't ours. We shouldn't slander people or tell lies about them or bear false witness in court. We should treat all people with dignity and respect and central, central to the concept of biblical justice is to ensure that safeguards are in place to protect those who are vulnerable and provide limits for those who are in positions of power. In your notes, I added a clarifying question to this, and it's an important one. Can you do justice that you can't define? Here's what one scholar had to say about biblical justice. God's justice is no abstraction at odds with an equally abstract mercy. The kind of justice that accords with God's character is realistic rather than idealistic. In the scripture, justice is tangible. In the scripture, justice is something you can do. In the book of Micah, for example, God lists specific things that they're doing that are unjust. unjust. Do justice. That's a powerful pairing. This is one of the things that made King so effective, isn't it? The more we can associate a clear and concrete do with our call to justice, the greater our impact will be. All right, let's look at the second pairing. Our work can be summarized in three powerful pairings. One, do justice. Second, love mercy. Mercy, another character quality that we find in the God of the Bible. He is consistently proven to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's mercy is also demonstrated through his grace, his goodness, his compassion, and his patience. As God's image bearers, his people are called to imitate him. To be merciful is to do more than withhold harshness. Biblical mercy, it actively extends 
help to people who are in need or people who are in trouble, especially in situations where people are vulnerable or in over their heads. And what a powerful pairing. Don't you want to be a part of a world where more and more people love, they love mercy. One of the books I read to prepare for the series is Dream With Me by John Perkins. In his book, he says this about love. Love, he says, no matter where I start, I always end here. I added a question for the love mercy pairing too. It's another important one. What did it say? Does anyone remember? It said, what does love require in this moment? All right. Let's take a quick look at the last pairing. Our work can be summarized in three powerful pairings. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. I said let's take a quick look because we have been making this point for every week of this series. This point that we've got to, we've got to, we've got to walk humbly. We're entrenched because people aren't. People aren't walking humbly. Another gift that Hollis gave us on Thursday nights was the learner-judger framework. It describes two very different paths. Do you approach difficult conversations with humility and questions and curiosity as a learner? Or do you approach things in such a way where you're quick to form conclusions, quick to cast blame, where you're judging all the time? My brothers and sisters, let's put our shovels down. Let's pick our Bibles up. Let's be quick to listen and slow to speak. When we do these things, we're joining God in His reconciling work. When we do these things, we're ambassadors of His. Those are powerful pairings. And as we live them out, out instead of conforming to this function all around us, we've got a shot in Jesus' name of actually bringing transformation Let's be ambassadors of Christ rather than ambassadors for influencers. Let's take our cues from the church in Antioch rather than the mobs. Let's lament and let's not lament like those who have no hope. Let's use our words to create the world that we want to live in. And let's not give up in that pursuit of that vision. And let's do justice. Let's love mercy. Let's walk humbly with our God. Let's take our next steps in faith, even if they don't feel big enough, because a baby step in the right direction is better than the giant step that no one takes. Let's pray. Father, thank you. And we confess before you that there's so much more that could be said. There's so much more that could be said differently. But we're joining you in your work. We're joining you in work that may seem just impossibly, impossibly big. But God, you are the God of the possible. Help us to dare believe that these steps that we take in faith can be used by you to bring us further and further from where we are and closer and closer to the world that can be. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said.